we're building a place that is what we believe offers creatives all the resources they need to imagine anything that's possible. And so with that, we committed to Trillith. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, we sit down with Frank Patterson, who's the president and CEO of Trellis Studios. Frank, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Good to connect with you. Oh, it's going to be a fun conversation. So I thank you for uh, taking the time. I want to start off quickly before you dive into the story. Can you tell us a little bit about who Trillith is and the background of the company? Sure. Trillith Studios, we uh, formerly known as Pinewood Atlanta Studios. We just recently rebranded. We're one of the largest purpose-built film and television studios uh, facilities in the world. We have about uh, 18, I was about to say 18 stages, but hey, in a couple months here, we're going to have 24 stages. So um, about a million, 200,000 square feet of stages and workshops and uh, offices and, you know, special effects pads, places where we can blow stuff up. And we provide this sort of operational expertise and these production facilities to some of the biggest filmmakers in the world. We originally began here in Atlanta as Pinewood Atlanta Studios uh, six, seven years ago. Pinewood is an 85-year-old brand uh, that supported filmmakers from Alfred Hitchcock all the way to George Lucas. And we've uh, you know, carried on that tradition here at Trillith. We were home to the production of um, Avengers Infinity War and Endgame and uh, a lot of superhero projects. Uh, mainly our stages and facilities are designed to support these very big, very fast-moving, uh, expensive productions. That's what we're known for. That's what we're good at. And we're having a good time right now <laughs> out there because, as you know, everybody went home during COVID and started watching all the content at the very moment that we had to stop making content. So everybody is intensely focused on uh, getting production back and into the pipeline. As a dad of twins here at home, we, uh, we watch many of the movies that come from your, uh, your set. So, cool. so those superheroes are well known in the Knox household. Have you had so. a chance to see WandaVision yet? Uh, we have. It's uh, every Friday night. It's a regular uh, dial in. Good. Good. So. That's very fun. So, you know, with somebody with such a legacy that you had with Pinewood, what led you to the decision to rebrand the studio? Well, it really was just uh, an expansion or the scope of our business. So we have a great partnership with the folks at Pinewood. Uh, Still work with them, love those, but they are a, a facilities business. And that's what we are too. Um, a few years ago, when I came on, we really wanted to focus on building two other pillars of business uh, in addition to the facilities business. One is we wanted to start making some strategic investments into content. We knew there would be an incredible demand for content, given everything that's going on in, uh, in the industry. And we also wanted to uh, begin making investments in technologies technologies that help content scale. There's a lot of opportunity for innovation, virtual production, that sort of thing. And so we, we saw that coming and wanted to make those uh, kinds of investments. Our partners at Pinewood wanted to stay in the facilities business. So we sort of gladly shook hands and said, let's figure out how to separate. And, you know, somebody's going to buy somebody. So we bought out the, their share uh, of the studio. I brought in a group of investors 
we took some equity in the studio and we knew we were going to have to rebrand. And as you know, uh, Dave, key to rebranding is being able to authentically tell (laughs) the world what you're actually doing. And we really had two goals with that. One was we wanted to carry forward our sort of British heritage, right? Uh, Pinewood uh, is an 85-year-old brand and we're quite proud of our history with Pinewood. So we were hoping to do something that would allow us to carry forward our British heritage. But we also needed to sort of tell the world that we were now a three-pillar business. So, uh, and what those pillars were. During the whole rebranding process, I found myself focusing on Stonehenge. One of our researchers came up with it because it was interesting for us because it's right down the road from Pinewood in London. So it's a UK asset, very interesting. And it happened to match our three pillars of business very perfectly. It was very purpose-built, purpose-built place. It's rich with stories, and it was the most advanced technology of its time. So we thought, that's interesting. Those are our three pillars, you know, purpose-built place, story, and technology. And then I learned that that three-stone structure in Stonehenge is called a trillith. And trilliths are seen uh, in uh, all around the world often as gateways to very interesting places, often gateways to inspiration. So we thought that was a perfect match for what we're We're building a place that is what we believe offers creatives all the resources they need to imagine anything that's possible. And so with that, we committed to Trillith and our three-pillar business. That's a, a great brand story. So you, you mentioned the thing you're building at the moment. What is the vision for this master development that you're creating with Trillith? Well, we went from sort of a facilities business, right, with a great reputation and with wonderful partners in the movie business. We went from a facilities business to building a place, a place uh, where our vision is this is a place where all the resources that one would need, any creative would need in the film and television industries are here in one place, a place where they feel like anything's possible. So we have uh, built a town with beautifully designed homes and parks, and 51% of the space is actually green space. It's the largest geothermal installation of its kind in the United States, and it's, the architecture is absolutely gorgeous because we know you know, our sort of creative tribe here is very interested in design and, and loves to live among beauty. Um, we have, uh, you know, a town center with restaurants, uh, no branded restaurants. These are restaurants that are, um, uh, are created by uh, proprietors. Uh, you know, we're looking for the sous chef who wants to build her first restaurant, right? And we want to do it in Trillith. We're looking for makers and, and artists and people who want to live here. We have a very well-known stunt woman who lives in town. And we have a wonderful sort of maker artist who has uh, who's a world-class uh, found object artist in town. We have all kinds of people actually uh, living in the town now adjacent to this incredible uh, movie studio. So the goal here is that Trillith is a place where storyteller, storytellers uh, can come, uh, feel like anything's possible, tell their stories, you know, and if they want, they can live and raise their families here, or they can just come visit and, and make and move on. But uh, it's kind of a dream, dream place for us. I mean, selfishly, it's the place I want to, <laughs> I wish I could have found when I was 25 years old. So when you think about the industry you're playing in, content has been around 
as long, you know, a long, long time, obviously, but it's had some pretty dramatic changes over the last Mm -hmm. decade. With content ever changing, how do you as a studio manage this growing demand and all of the different facets that come with it? Well, it's a great question. You know, on the one hand, on our facilities business, we, you know, we've We have relationships with, you know, the very best content makers in the world. I think it's it's public knowledge, uh, you know, that Marvel's made a a lot of movies here and and WandaVision most recently and Walt Disney Company and and Warner Brothers and Sony. I mean, just we we feel very fortunate to have uh, that kind of relationship with those kinds of content makers. But as you know, as you just mentioned, the content world is changing fast. I mean, it reminds me of the old Jack Welch quote, when the rate of change outside your organization is faster than the rate of change inside your organization, you're in some serious danger. And I think all the changes that we're seeing in our industry is creating the the old disruption thing that you've written about much. And so it's also a very exciting time. Uh, as long as you're willing to make bets and, and investments and, and, and really look forward. And so for us, we really focused our investments on content companies that have a history of or in a position of making kind of multimedia franchise content, kind of 360 content. That's really in keeping with where we think it's going right now. We're seeing a rise in I'm sure you've covered this. We're, you know, we're seeing a rise, for example, in how short-form content is causing longer-term engagement with consumers. Uh, and that change, of course, is, is, is a result of creators beginning to build their own brands instead of simply producing content. And they're doing this, of course, by using short-form content on free, low-barrier technologies like YouTube and TikTok to gain direct access to and to build audiences, Right. They then leverage their audience to build their brand around an entire ecosystem of longer form content like licensed merchandise, consumer products, publishing games, right? And it's, it's, it's their taking ownership of building their own 360 model of revenue that was until recently in storytelling history limited to the you know, biggest IP in the world, primarily because of the siloed business model, uh, business structures and the enormous cost for producers to access distribution channels. Well, that's been changing recently. I think of one example in the kids space. And I think what we're seeing is, a, is changes in, 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 in the consumer habits of younger people. So I, you know, I'm a, I'm a 60 year old, who grew up watching three networks, right, on TV. And I just marvel at the way the younger audiences and and their behavior is causing changes in our industry, and we're really tapping into that. So when I think of, uh, for example, in the kids' space, one current example uh, of this new trend is is a show called Coco Melon, which is owned by Moonbug Entertainment. It's a children's brand built on 3D animation shorts, you know, on a YouTube channel. It was the third most popular show on Netflix in 2020 after becoming the second most subscribed YouTube channel in the world and the most subscribed YouTube channel in the U.S. I underscore that Netflix licensed Coco Melon for their subscription business after it was available to the entire world for free on YouTube, a move that, you know, just a couple of years ago would have destroyed media executive careers, right? 
So the reason, of course, is that Netflix is buying audience and proven digital IP that they're betting will keep their viewers and importantly, their viewers, parents and grandparents inside the app. So uh, Moonbug then, of course, introduced toys based on three Cocomelon characters and the development of a feature film. And no doubt, educational games, publishing, and eventually, uh, you know, live shows are right behind as these content creators are building an impressive brand with multiple revenue streams. And it's, it's kind of outside the traditional system, right? And they've built measurable brand affinity among consumers that they are now leveraging to engage their audience in a variety of Cocoa Melon IP. That all began with free short form content on YouTube. And that is now, by the way, I think COVID help, how do I say this? COVID was devastating for all of us, but it really advanced some of these changes that were coming anyway. You know, in this case, how short form content is being used to create long, longer term engagement through a 360 sort of business model for creators. So um, that's where we want to be, right? We want to back talent. We want to look at media as building brands that engage viewers in content that we love, that we can support, that we get behind. You know, we're makers, we're creators, and we think that's the future, and we're just excited to be part of it. Talent is a big part of predicting the turn, and as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. So a lot of those changes you just talked about are ones driven by technology, you know, the rise of streaming and everything else that goes into it. And that's one of the three core pillars that you talked about is the the heart of what Trillith is. That's right. How are you building technology into the vision of what you're doing with Trillith? Well, right now we, we started, you know, let's do one thing well. And one immediate problem that we can solve for our filmmakers on the lot today is to give them direct access to virtual production tools that make their ability to shoot content, manufacture content, faster, better, safer with uh, better creative outcomes. And so we uh, brought on former uh, ILM thought leader, Barry Williams, to lead this technology sector with a first focus on how virtual production can sort of liberate our filmmakers on the lot right now. And so um, for those who may not know what virtual production is, it's, it's sort of a buzzword in the industry these days. But basically, how can we use um, game engines and different kinds of immersive technologies like LED screens to give filmmakers the opportunity to place a camera in a 360 environment or sometimes a 180 environment so that they can take the camera into locations, into imaginary worlds while being on a soundstage and have uh, actors, uh, sometimes virtual characters, uh, physical and digital assets, 
all on the set at the same time and interact with them with a camera in real time so that they can, you know, literally the dream is they're, you know, they're limited only by their own imaginations. And so the most famous, of course, recent example of this was Mandalorian and how ILM and the ILM team built all those worlds and they, um, that the, you know, the filmmakers were able to explore on a soundstage. But if you just think about how that kind of technology can um, provide all kinds of opportunities for filmmakers, um, you know, here on the lot, what we've done is somebody needed, uh, you know, uh, a driving scene at night in New York, and it needed to be a busy night, uh, you know, on Fifth Avenue. And so we just pop them in that. And then later that afternoon, they need to be in a country road in Georgia. So we just pop them in that, you know, an old fashioned kind of process shot. But when you can bring you know, whatever car you want with whatever actors you want into whatever environment you want, anytime you want <laughs> in a 180 or 360 degree environment, that's liberating to a filmmaker. So those kinds of technologies that help content scale is what our first focus is. So moving in, Talka, you hinted at, you know, what's happened with COVID and obviously it's been on the forefront of how entertainment has been impacted. You've had release schedules changing. You've had movie theaters shut down, you've had to the rise of streaming and everything else. How has Trillith made production possible during COVID? Well, like everybody else, I guess, in the United States, you know, come second week of March, we just uh, put pencils down. And I remember that following Monday, we circled our team and asked ourselves, instead of how can we be the best place in the world for top creatives to make content? How can, you know, the question became, how can we become the safest place in the world? And that's a very different charge because we didn't know what safe meant. So we spent about 12 weeks trying to answer that question. And we really focused on three areas. One is, of course, just new sets of practices. How will we operate? And that was one we had to work with all of the other stakeholders in the industry with, right? Our unions, guilds, associations, because that's a collaboration on how we're all going to get back to work. But those behaviors were really critically important. The second was technology and our facilities. What kinds of technologies could we install that would enable us to, you know, we just, we, we had this sense and I'm a technologist and, and, and I knew there was more, for example, that the Pentagon had been doing in work environments. And I just had a hunch that there was opportunities there. And by the way, we discovered a very cool technology and we're able to get it installed very quickly that kills COVID on contact. And so, um, you know, we knew that technology was going to be critically important. And then we knew security was going to be critically important. So we just went down this process, like I guess any startup does, right? How are we going to bring value to the marketplace? And in this case, how will we become the you know safest studio in the world? This was our goal, right? Sounds like a silly goal. But in that moment, it was really critically important to us. How can we be the safest place? And then we started working with our production partners 
and sharing our results. And like I'm sure a lot of people across the United States, you know, we participated in all these uh, task forces, right? I think I was in 12 task force meetings a week <laughs> for, for 10 weeks, you know, with the different stakeholders trying to figure this out. And um, we were able to get our first uh, feature film, the advanced team back to work the first week of June. And so we felt like that was a win. It was, uh, the, you know, the first uh, studio feature film in the United States to sort of get back to work and uh, the first project in, in the state of Georgia to get back to work. So we were excited about that. But, you know, that was a test. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like uh, I felt like this is a little bit of exaggeration, but I felt like NASA trying to solve the problem and how we're going to get Apollo 13 back here. Yeah, we have a plan, but now we've got to deliver. And fortunately, you know, all parties were keenly focused on succeeding. So it was a lot of our testing partner, BioIQ, giving real-time feedback daily, three times a day in the beginning. Our technology partner who was handling our air and all of our facilities, Synexus, getting real-time daily feedback and then getting feedback from all the team members and really learning how, as you might imagine, the goal was no one with COVID is going on our lot. Now, how do we figure that out, right? Because the last thing we needed was a spike. We're very fortunate. It worked. And, you know, today I had well over 3,500 people badge on the lot. And we have a lot of productions up and running. And uh, WandaVision just wrapped out of here. And, of course, you're all watching it. It's a great show. It's a hit. We love Marvel. We love the show. And we feel very proud that we were able to help that team get back to work. In response, a lot of uh, other industries, sports teams in particular, kind of moved to the bubble format with that. With Trillith, you kind of have a self-contained community. So very did helpful. You ever, <laughs> yeah. Did you ever go to that extreme or were you always blending given some people live in Atlanta and drive down to the lot? Well, I mean, not to get into the weeds, but we, I guess we have the time to get a little bit into the weeds. But first of all, interesting, the technology that we used for our safe environments, in other words, the, we're putting uh, DHP molecules in the air in all of our environments that attach through water molecules, about 600,000 units of D, uh, molecules of DHP per cubic foot so that we're turning rooms into lungs, essentially, that like your lungs protect you when you breathe air, these rooms protect you. And so if someone were to have COVID and cough or sneeze or whatever, those DHP molecules attack it in the air before it even lands. And we got all that technology based, I was on a board of another company and I was in a particular meeting and I learned about this technology from sports teams. Basically, the Major League Baseball was already testing it, had a very positive outcome. The reduction of six days, uh, sick days for that MLB team was dramatic. It was down like 98% when they were using this technology in sports teams. And because to your point, you know, they can be in a bubble and you can use that as a perfect research project. So the University of Georgia did some research in conjunction with this initiative that allowed us with the success of the major league baseball teams outcomes with this technology. This was pre COVID. They were literally just trying to reduce sick days by the time spent in locker room. And they wanted the locker room to be a healthier place. 
And so we realized during that whole research period that what we needed to do was to put different members of the different teams into populations. And the kinds of populations that, like, for example, I fell into a population that, unless it was an emergency, did not need to be at the studio. So it was like, Frank, don't show up unless you absolutely have to be here. Right now, I would have to let people know when I was coming. Some people, of course, needed to be on the set every day and were around a lot of different people. So they fell into the highest, highest risk population. Their testing frequency, the monitoring frequency, the data feedback frequency was was significantly different than my population. And so the combination of having a secured kind of closed environment with the management of populations allowed us to control and track the spread of the virus. To your point, what we found quickly was, and this is no shade on any group of people, right? But the kind of day players, the people that would come in to work on carpentry for three days that weren't really on the main crew and the, the kind of level of testing we required before they could go onto the lot, we found those were where all the, the, the largest share of positives were happening. Because these are people, craftsmen and women, who are working in all kinds of industries, not just carpentry in the movie business, but they're also building houses and they're, they're out and about and, 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 of course, exposing themselves to a lot of different environments. And so that ended up being the highest risk environment that was, uh, I'm sorry, the highest risk population that we had to really focus on and double check, double test and all that stuff before they could go on to the lot. So it was a lot of population management environmental controls, and then, uh, as you might imagine, constant feedback. So when you look at the, you know, call it the next year to five years, how do you see or envision productions permanently changing as a result of what you've lived through the last year? I think we've become a lot more conscious of how we behave in teams And when you consider that the flu was barely a blip this year, the common flu, compared to other years, and of course, we were all locked away. I completely understand the price that was paid, but we like the fact that there were a lot fewer sick days, right, which creates... um, you know, a more stable work environment, both for crew and for producers. So I have a feeling we're going to continue to value some of the basic lessons that we learned from this hand washing, being sensitive to that if you're feeling sick, don't come to work. And by the way, there's a culture in our industry, and I'm sure this is in a lot of industries. But when you're on a crew in the movie business, it's a point of pride to show up no matter what. I mean, you know, people will come after being in a car accident. I mean, they're, they're going to show up. You don't let your team down. And that kind of culture is, you know, since, since I've been in the movie business. So I know it's been from the beginning. Well, we had to change that. We had to say, look, you're feeling sick. You need to protect your crew and not show up. I think post-COVID, we're going to, that, that change of culture will continue. And I think uh, a lot of the safety precautions that we learned will continue as well. Sensitivity toward getting cast members sick. As you know, we can replace um, a grip in a day's notice who's feeling sick, but you don't get to replace, you know, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. If he's sick, we're in trouble. So 
sensitivities about how we interact every day and, and work with uh, cast members, I think uh, are going to be carried forward. So I think a lot of behavior changes and we'll continue to use some of the technologies. We, given how good everybody feels with the Synexus technologies in our studios, we're going to carry those forward. And that just makes a healthier work environment and reduces sick days. So I think those will be the, the biggest kinds of changes that we will certainly carry forward in the movie business. We're all very eager to increase the output <laughs> close to what it was before because we had to significantly reduce. I mean, I don't know what the number is. My estimate is it's a 20%, you know, slower, 20, 30% slower than we used to be because we're just having to move stage people, time, uh, just I bet if we did time motion studies pre-COVID pre and post-COVID, you'd see significant cost in just that alone. So I think that's what we'll carry forward. Well, you know, I can't thank you enough for sharing the journey of where you've been with Trilith, how you guys have responded, and thank you for producing such amazing shows on, uh, on the lot. So, <laughs> Hey, Dave, it's great to talk to you. I appreciate your time and your interest. Hey, thank you. Take care. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.